Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. With Robo Hair. Sprite Castle. Hello and welcome to Sprite Castle, the show in which I play, discuss, and review Commodore 64 games. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Sprite Castle, I will be discussing Below the Root. Do you know where the name Below the Root came from? You will, after listening to this episode of Sprite Castle. But before we get started talking about this week's game, let's check the Daily Sun for this week's Paperboy headlines. Welcome back to Sprite Castle. I've got a lot of show news to cover on this episode, so I'm going to move through things pretty quickly this week. I uploaded several videos to the Amigos Retro Gaming channel. You can find that at youtube.com forward slash Amigos Retro Gaming. I played Grid Picks this week, which is a 2020 release for the Commodore 64. It's a fun little uh, art uh, style game. I guess those are Picross games. Uh, I also uploaded some video of playing some different rally games, a thousand miles grand rally, thousand grand miles rally, whatever that's called. I played that along with the uh, Neo drift out and some other uh, racing games. So you could find those over on the YouTube channel. I also had some extra footage of Shinobi, the arcade game, which I uploaded to my uh, YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. Uh, on the last episode, I covered Dino Eggs, and I did upload a video of that also to the Amigos channel, and I got some good feedback on that video, including feedback from David Schroeder, who was the original author of Dino Eggs for the Apple II. Of course, the Apple II was the original release, and it was ported to the Commodore 64. And one of the things I found that was interesting in his comment was he mentioned that he never directly conversed with the man who converted the game to the Commodore 64. He said he provided source code and, and graphic uh, material and things like that, but he never actually spoke with the person who did the conversion. I thought that was very interesting. In my mind, uh, those would have been teams that would have been, uh, you know, working closely together. But he left a long a comment. He enjoyed the video. And uh, so don't forget, uh, if you're checking out the YouTube uh, Amigos Retro Gaming channel, uh, just go to the Sprite Castle playlist and you can also watch that uh, video from last week uh, or the last episode where I played Dino Eggs. Uh, last week's 8-bit song for King of the Castle was T-Rex. I guess in different uh, regions it is either known as Bang a Gong or Get It On. But either way, whichever title you sent me, it turns out it was pretty easy to identify. So congratulations to all the Kings of the Castle this week. Kings of the Castle included Adam from Retro Gaming Bygones Podcast, Mitsuyama, Boat of Car from the Amigos, Steve Sharippa, Joseph Sharippa, Rick Reynolds, Darren Folds, Louis Gorenfeld, Ferg from the Atari 2600 Game by Game Podcast, and Morgan Wentworth, who sent their name in about 30 seconds before I hit record. So they just made it in. It was the last key I had to the party room. So the party room is packed this week with all the Kings of the castle. Uh, if you would like to participate, listen to the eight bit song played at the end of this episode. It won't be from the game, but the title of the song or the band, or possibly the lyrics will be related to the game's theme in some way. And all you have to do is identify that song 
send me the name of the song, the name of the artist, and how it ties to the theme of the game. For example, everyone who said uh, Bang a Gong, Get It On was recorded by T-Rex. And of course, last week's game was Dino Eggs, which was the connection. So send that and you will be one of the kings of the castle. Congratulations again. For this week's news, I have a few things I wanted to mention. One is the release of Sid Kick, which is a new drop-in Sid replacement. Uh, this is designed to run on the Teensy 4.1, uh, which is a tiny, small board. I believe you can pick this up for about $25 and then just drop the Sid Kick code right onto it. It emulates two SIDs. It's based on the re-SID code. So you can emulate either a 6581 or an 8550 SID chip. So if you have a Commodore 64 with a busted SID, this might be the drop-in replacement you are looking for. I saw a new game released this week. Uh, actually, it was yesterday that Spider Fighter, which is an Atari 2600 game, was released for the Commodore 64. I believe this was released by Haplo with music from Richard Bayless. Uh, so this is a a uh, award-winning team. Every time you see these names, you know that you're going to get quality games. Uh, Spider Fighter was uh, an Activision game, I believe, from the Atari 2600. And now, like a lot of the other ports that we got last year, like uh, Chopper Command and Frostbite and Keystone Capers, uh, this is another Activision port that you can play right here on your Commodore 64. Uh, speaking of new software, I saw a game in the works. It is a port of Puzzle Bobble, and uh, it looks like it's almost ready to be released, so I will be keeping an eye out for that because Puzzle Bobble is a great game. I played it all the time. And in fact, I, it's one of the uh, uh, earlier games I got for my PS1. And uh, in uh, Super Nintendo, I had it on many different systems, and so I'm definitely looking forward to that Puzzle Bobble port for the Commodore 64. And... Um, Finally, I saw uh, that there's not much information on this yet, but it appears that someone is making the FujiNet available for the Commodore 64. Now, the FujiNet, if you're obviously Fuji refers to uh, the Atari, and uh, FujiNet is a device that enables uh, Atari computers to get online. Uh, so it works as a uh, um, online modem adapter, but it also allows you to stream games um, <clears throat> that are hosted on the internet. Uh, so you don't have to have a huge collection of disk images for your Atari computer. You can just grab those from online and it shoots it over to your FujiNet device. And so I'm not sure if this is going to be a modified FujiNet for the Commodore 64, or if it's going to be some sort of adapter that will work with the FujiNet as it stands right now, or different code. But um, so I would expect if this uh, becomes a, a full-fledged product, that this will be something that will allow you to get your original hardware online and also to uh, download probably disk images and play them on your Commodore 64. Now we had the flyer modem. A while back, I have one of those on the C64, and another thing that these do is usually there's a, some sort of server in that you can run locally, so if you have a bunch of disk images, you can store those on your local computer. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how this uh, develops a FujiNet for the Commodore 64. Uh, I did get a, a question from one of my 16-bit Patreon supporters, one of the Rewards that my 16-bit Patreon uh, supporters get is that they're allowed to ask me a question, and I will answer it on the air. And this one, um, 
came from uh, Dave Zilly, one of my listeners, and Dave Zilly from Vancouver said uh, he knew that I had a background with uh, early 8-bit computers, the Apple II, the Commodore 64, and he was curious what programming I did on those systems. Now, uh, I do a lot of scripting today. I did um, – the, the, the most I got into modern programming is Visual Basic, which – um, I think a lot of people scoff at, but uh, I did a lot of cool things with Visual Basic. I wrote a lot of uh, really handy apps, and, and I enjoy doing Visual Basic. But at work, um, Visual Basic is more uh, a software that you, you would develop apps that have a, a graphical interface. And really what I moved into eventually was uh, scripting for automated systems so that I didn't have to have things that, that uh, required a GUI that they would automatically run. So I moved from Visual Basic to VB Script and then eventually to PowerShell. And I work mostly in a Microsoft environment, so PowerShell uh, is very handy. I've done other things. I've done Python. I've done uh, um, web coding, you know, PHP kind of stuff. But uh, PowerShell is kind of my bread and butter during the day. But when you go back to those 8-bit computers. Um, I was never good at programming them. I never got into assembly language. I had a book on assembly language and it just didn't make any sense to me. Um, it seemed like a monumental amount of code just to get, uh, you know, a single letter to appear or something. <laughs> I just could never wrap my head around, uh, doing anything like that. Now I wrote a lot of basic programs. The first program I ever wrote was on the TRS-80 and we got rid of the TRS-80 when I was, oh gosh, um, eight or nine. And so before we moved to the Apple. Uh, and I wrote a multiple choice dinosaur trivia quiz that would ask questions. Um, and then uh, you would answer by uh, you know picking multiple choice dinosaurs. And at the end, it would give you a score, which wasn't bad for an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old, you know. Uh, but but it wasn't very advanced. Of course, the questions weren't randomized. It was always the same ten questions, always the same uh, choices. But uh, but it worked, you know. Uh, I wrote some basic programs on the Apple II. Uh, I wrote um, this thing one time that was supposed to solve mazes that didn't work very well <laughs> um, as part of a school project. I, I wrote, um, uh, you know, I tried writing even. Some of the Apple stuff, you know, then moved into the uh, Commodore 64, where I wrote a lot of programs that weren't, didn't work like real programs, but looked like real programs. Uh, it's a uh, difficult to explain, but for example, I tried writing my own uh, text adventure, but I didn't understand how a parser works. So you would come to the first room and. It would the game would not proceed until you typed the right two word command. So anything else that you typed, it would say, "Nope, that's not right. That's not right." Until you exactly typed, you know, pick up book or get book or whatever it was at the time. Uh, so it was not, uh, you know, if you were looking at it, you might think, "Oh, this guy wrote his own text adventure," but behind the scenes, it it wasn't very advanced. It wasn't very good. I would say that the probably the. One of the programs that I wrote, uh, and this was all in basic, this was on the PC, I remember, was a Dungeons & Dragons character generator. So this kind of evolved. Uh, it began because we needed Dungeons & Dragons character sheets. Now, the, the basic 
D&D set had a character a blank character sheet on the manual itself and you could make photocopies of that my mom would make us copies at work but uh you know the AD&D characters were that came on the ones that I bought were on yellow paper which made them difficult to copy and my mom had this glossy photocopy paper at work so when you got them it was hard to write on so uh, I wrote a program in BASIC that would basically print out a blank character sheet. So it didn't have any uh, – there was no logic to it or anything. It would just print, you know, like name, and then there would be a blank, and class, and it would be a blank, you know, and, and it drew a little square where the photo went. But over time, I developed a thing that would automatically generate characters, and so you would run it and – uh, it would roll the stats and, and um, you know, then it would say, okay, do you like these stats? And it would show you what they are and you could do yes or no and re-roll. Uh, and then you would, you know, based on whatever the high stats were, it would tell you what classes you qualified for. And, um, you know, I mean, it was pretty simplistic, you know, and it never drew a picture or anything. It just still drew that square. But when you were done, you could print these out and we could use them. Uh, as character sheets in our uh, little adventures and modules and stuff like that. And it was also good for rolling up uh, NPCs, you know. So if you had a needed a, a, a player that the DM was going to control or something, then you could generate characters quickly with that. So, um, But that's about as advanced as my retro programming got. I tried making some games. I tried doing some other things. But it was all in basic, and it was all very terrible. And I never advanced to... Um, uh, assembly or anything like that. I wish I had. And, um, you know, I typed in a million programs from books. I had all the, I probably had 20 books on, uh, program your Commodore 64 and, and would poke in all the sprites and all that, but I never learned anything from it. I could do, do the games that were, that were presented, but I was never able to take those techniques and turn them into, um, original games or anything. So anyway, thanks again, uh, to Dave Zilly. Uh, for asking that question. Uh, if you want to ask your own question to get an answer on the show, then go over to Patreon and uh, sign up as a 16-bit supporter. Uh, another thing that program did, I forgot, was it would generate um, big groups. So if you needed like a bunch of trolls uh, or a bunch of... Uh, one time I, I generated like a whole... Um, tavern full of characters, you know, it could kick that out. So you could say like, oh, I need, you know, 30 characters or whatever. And it actually generated names. Uh, it was kind of cool. Like you would just say, you know, hey, I need 30 people. And it would kick out names like Joshua Eckroth, David Chambers, Paradroid, Matt Hill, C. Dubs, Carrie Clanton, Z. Pabsky, Alan Hudgens, Mitsuyama, Steve Sharippa, Stephen Burt, Mike McLaughlin, Darren Folds, Rydar Bow, Christopher Bow, Armadon Restel, Olaf Hope, David Hearn, John Schaller, Eric Stryanisi, Dave Zilly, Steve Rasmussen, Patrick Markey, Chris Folds, Garrett Allier, Scrap Arcade, Jose Quizada, Graham Vebke, Rick Reynolds, Scott Lambert, John Morrison, Mark Alley, Jake Nonamaker, John Treholt, Roy Jacobs, and the mysterious Cobra Kai. I wish the program had been able to do that. <laughs> Unfortunately, it wasn't that advanced, but that was not a list of all the uh, characters it could generate. That 
was a list of all my Patreon supporters. So again, if you want to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. Look at the 8-bit and 16-bit rewards. And uh, a new reward that I am adding is we are going to be putting together a virtual Zoom meeting for all my Patreon supporters. So if you want to come hang out, um, we're going to try, we're going to do one um, probably late in the day and one early in the day to try to hit both uh, sides of the Atlantic. So we're going to see how it works out, but we'll be doing that pretty soon. So if you're interested in hanging out and meeting people and trading some old computer stories and whatever happens, uh, be sure to go over to Patreon and check that out. That concludes this week's headlines, which are brought to you by my local paper boy who just got bitten by the neighbor's dog. Oh man, that's bogus. Now that we've discussed this week's headlines, let's discuss this week's snack. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Talking snack. Well, Below the Root is a role-playing game where you must go around and and uh, find different things. But one of the things you have to do in the game is eat. If you don't eat, you will pass out. And there's a lot of different kinds of food uh, available in the game. But one of the first ones that I found while replaying this game was pan bread. Uh, Of course, there's fruit and nuts. There's wisenberries. There's all these different things. But pan bread was the one that when I saw it really triggered that smell in my mind. I just immediately had that memory of fresh bread. And so I have a bread maker that we have not used in about 10 years. And we decided to dig it out last week. My wife picked up all the the stuff that you need and we made this giant loaf of bread. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm more about uh, efficiency. Like, you know, there's a lot of things, man. I mean, I know I've heard of people that make their own butter. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go buy a tub of butter or a stick of butter or whatever. Uh, I just don't have it in me to to put that much effort into making butter. And I would have said as of last week that there's just not that much difference from, uh, you know, a loaf of bread versus a, a homemade uh, bread. But, oh, man, it's homemade bread so good, man. You know, when that thing comes out and it's hot, you got hot bread and you cut off a piece and put a little bit of butter on there and it just kind of melts. And, and um, no matter how, what serving size you make, it's always too big. <laughs> like I never cut a thin thing of bread off a loaf of bread, man. Just, you just tear this big chunk off it or try to cut it or whatever. And uh, we ended up using it and we made some uh, pasta. We did some other stuff and, and served it with that, but man, was that good. And so that was uh, this week's talking snack was homemade bread and uh, it's been in several days, and I could still smell it. <laughs> I still have that memory uh, in my head. But uh, there's no more homemade bread. But speaking of pan bread, let's get to this week's game, which is Below the Root, which was published for the Commodore 64 in 1984 by Wyndham Classics. It is a game for one player that uses joystick controls. Now, Wyndham Classics was a division of Spinnaker Software. Spinnaker Software was mostly known for educational-type games, but Wyndham Classics published five games, uh, and they were all related to classic books. Swiss Family Robinson, 
Treasure Island, Wizard of Oz, Alice in Wonderland, and of course, Below the Root. Now, the first three games I mentioned, Swiss Family Robinson, Treasure Island, and Wizard of All, were all graphical text adventures. But the last two, Alice in Wonderland and this game, Below the Root, used a very unique engine, which we'll be talking about uh, the gameplay. But they both use the same engine. They're very similar in the, the gameplay style. This game was actually developed a program by a man named Dale Disharoon, who we'll be talking about briefly. He contacted the author of the Below the Root book series, and the two of them decided to make a game based on the trilogy of books. Uh, along with uh, Alice in Wonderland and Below the Root, he also worked on several titles, including Hey Diddle Diddle, The Adventure Creator, which was a Spinnaker release, Edition Magician, and The Scoop, which is an adventure game I have never seen before, and I will be playing that shortly. I looked at uh, the screenshots on Moby Games, and it looks pretty interesting. So speaking of Moby Games, the description of Below the Root there says, Below the Root is based on Zilpha Keatley Snyder's fantasy book series, The Green Sky Trilogy. Following the events in those books, the Kinder and the Erdling societies have joined together. However, unrest and distrust still remains. An old woman, Dole Fala, has heard the words, The spirit fades in darkness lying, a quest proclaim, the light is dying. Choosing one of five available people of different ages and either Kindar or Erdling descent, either she believes can help Dolfala. I got lost here. Dolfala assigns the quest of discovering what these words mean and how to quell the racial and political tensions building between the races. If it sounds complicated, just wait. <laughs> It is a complicated backstory that tries to cram and fix the problems of three novels in one game. So we're going to talk about all this. Now, the relationship to those games is, or to those books is interesting. Uh, there were three books, a trilogy that are together, like it says, referred to as the Green Sky Trilogy. And the first of those books was called Below the Root. Um, however, this game is not a remake of that novel. This game is considered to be the fourth story. <laughs> this basically begins after the end of the third book and continues the adventure that took place in that trilogy. We're going to cover that in more details as well. The box is... Like other Wyndham classics, it's very classy. It says below the root in a vintage style font. Uh, below that, it says a classic software fantasy based on the Green Sky trilogy by Zilpha Keatley Snyder. And then there is a watercolor style painting. Uh, these books take place in homes that were built in tall trees. And so you could see a picture of the tree village there. The manual is about 12 pages long, and it covers a lot of ground. 
Uh, it begins with the legend of Green Sky, which is a single page that kind of gives you the backstory about what's going on here. Uh, like I mentioned, there are two different races, the Kindar and the Erdlings. Um, they were separated. They were fighting, apparently, in the, story, in the books. They got together, but now some have been imprisoned. An important character is missing. Uh, and so it gives you a little bit of that information. Now, most of that information can be gleaned in little chunks during the game, but this is definitely a game where if you want to get in the entire story, you're going to have to read the manual. Uh, from there, it goes into the loading and the controls. Then you get to meet the Green Sky Questers. There are five characters to choose from, and depending on which one you choose uh, will affect how the game plays. Uh, it explains spirit skills, which we'll be talking about. It talks about exploring Green Sky. This is a uh, entire, like I said, village that has been built in the tops of trees. It explains the options menu and talks about checking your progress. These are all important things. Um, it gives a, there's a whole section that is a dictionary <laughs> because this is a fantasy style game that's built on a bunch of fantasy books. And so it explains that um, trees in this world are actually called grunds, G-R-U-N-D. Um, and instead of a hammock, it's called a nid. And salites are evil kinder societies and so on and so forth. So when you're if you're playing the game and you haven't read all this, there's a lot of confusing words in this game. Uh, then finally, there are final words of advice from Dolfala, which are hints about the game. And probably the most important one uh, is about speaking and pincing everyone. Uh, so a lot of these terms I'll be covering uh, tells you um, which characters are easier to play versus which ones are more difficult, how to use some of the tools in the game. Uh, and then there's a, the last two things. One is there's a big section about the adaptation and how this game came about. And finally, there is a map. Now the map is not really filled in. The map is a big, uh, fold out on graph paper that shows where the trees are, but it doesn't tell you what's in all the houses. And so the intention was for you to fill out the map. Uh, as gameplay went on. So lots and lots of stuff going on in this game before you ever get started. When you boot the game, you'll get the Wyndham Classics uh, screen. It, it uh, just basically, it's drawn in um, Petaskey's, uh, or Pet Asky. I always say Petaskey, uh, but it's drawn just in basic uh, uh, graphics and it, it flashes a little bit. And then eventually you get to the title screen uh, which has below the root kind of written in a banner hanging between two trees. It's a story by Zilpha Keatley Snyder. And you have four options, which are start game, continue, disk storage, and sample quest. Um, continue is obviously loading a previously saved adventure. Uh, disk storage will allow you to format a disk for saving games. And sample quest will allow you to watch the computer play the game. So if you're completely unfamiliar with uh, Below the Root the first time you boot it up, you might want to just click on that and watch it play, and, and you can uh, view the, the basics of how the game works. Now, once you hit Start Game, you will be asked to select a character. There are five characters to choose from. Narek, Gina, Hurd, Pama and Charm. Now, each one of those, uh, I think one, two, 
Three of those are Kendars, and two of them are Erdlings. But throughout the game, Kendars don't really get along with <laughs> Erdlings. And so, depending on which one of these characters that you choose, um, different people may help you along the way. Now, another thing about these different characters is that they have different uh, spirit limits. They have different stamina. They have different home locations where they start. So each one of these people have different homes. And so you'll be restarting a lot during the game and getting zapped back to your home. So some of them are in more convenient places uh, to get to locations than other. Uh, and then they each come with whatever food. Uh, most of them start with uh, some sort of food that's in their uh, um their little home. Uh, the Erdlings uh, can eat meat, and I think the Kindar can eat meat, but there's some sort of, uh, I think they lose spirit levels or something <laughs> uh, when they do. There's a punishment for eating meat. But um, uh, two of the characters, Pama and Charn, who are not uh, necessarily the easiest characters to play, um, but they... In this world, the younger characters have stronger spirit powers, and so they kind of start with a bonus um, with more spiritual level versus some of the older ones who have more stamina, um, but uh, not as much spiritual levels. But spiritual levels can be raised throughout the game. We'll, we'll talk about that. The controls are pretty simple. It's a joystick-controlled game. Now, both the Apple II and the DOS versions, uh, and this is listed in the manual, have keyboard control as well. And those are two computers that not everybody who owned an Apple or a PC had a joystick. But this game just assumes if you have a Commodore 64, you've got a joystick. And so uh, it only lists joystick controls. So the basics are you move your character around left, right, up and down. You climb up and down ladders and vines um, and then, you know, walk around left and right. The button serves many purposes. Uh, it jumps while you're walking. The button jumps. The button uh, enters, opens doors to enter different places. Uh, if you are falling, it opens your parachute, which in this game is called a shuba. Um, and then if you press the button and pull down, it opens up a menu system. And there are about 20 choices. Uh, and you will be using that menu system on almost every screen. <laughs> Anytime you have to interact with somebody or do something, you'll be doing it through this menu system. So uh, there's all the choices that you would expect. There's pause and speak, um, offer, buy, take, use, eat, sell, heal, rest, examine. But then there are three spiritual powers. The first one is pence. And pence is a spiritual ability in this game that allows you to read the feelings of other people and also if your level is high enough to get messages from them. So, for example, if you um start off as uh, I think Narek or Gina starts off with no spirit uh spirit ability. And so, you could walk into uh you know a a building and you enter a room and there's a guy there and he says, hey, do you want to take a rest? Which resting uh, is one of the things you'll have to do constantly in this game. You could pass out if, if you go long enough without resting. And um, you could say yes or no. And maybe you'll rest and you'll wake up and everything will be fine. Or maybe you'll wake up and find you have been kidnapped <laughs> and whisked away to a secret location where you're being uh, held against your will. So. 
if you were playing as Palma, who is a kinder child, uh, well, let's, let's say, um, one of the middle ones, let's say herd, I think, uh, herd has the ability right out of the gate to pince, uh, feelings. So that same scenario, you go into an innkeeper and you, uh, pince that person. So you speak to them and it says, Hey, would you like a, to take a nap here? And then you pince them and it says aggressive <laughs> or deceitful, something like that. You go, Oh, okay. I better not trust this guy. And so that would not be a place where you would want to, uh, uh, take a nap. Now, if you're playing as Palma, who starts off with a, a high spirit level, when you pince that person, it would say something like, it would still show the uh, emotion. It'll say emotion deceitful. And then there might be a message that would say, kidnappers are coming for you, baby. <laughs> it's, it wouldn't say it like that, but uh, it would give you a message. Now, pincing messages is the only way to get a lot of the information out the game. So you will have to raise your spirit level, and, and that's a whole separate uh, series of tasks that you have to do. But um, the uh, the messages that you get from pincing people will tell you, hey, you need to go to the top of this tree to get a key or <laughs> you know things like that. And so it's, it's legitimately like it is something that you will have to do. So that's normally why I start uh, with Palma is because – she has the ability to uh, do that right from the very beginning. But anyway, pincing is one of the choices down there on the menu. There are also uh, two other ones. One is Grunsprek, and the other one is Kenaport. Now, Kenaport basically means teleport. And so once you – none of the characters start with this ability. This is one that you have to earn by playing. But uh, once you earn it, you can uh, teleport items towards you. So if you go into a room and there's an item that you can't reach, you can click on it and you can teleport it to where you can reach it. Uh, and then, uh, or you can teleport yourself. You can teleport yourself up to a higher branch or something on a tree. And then there's Grunsprek, which is to make the tree branches grow. And so you will find later in the game, there are areas that simply cannot be reached. But once you have uh, developed this spirit skill, Grunsprek, you can stand at the end of the branch and and use this this ability and the branch will grow a little bit and so you could cover gaps that you couldn't normally jump across you can make the branches grow together to where you can uh, access other parts of the game each one of these uses some of your spirit level which can be renewed by eating certain things or resting and so uh, again your health your food and your spirit levels are constantly going down the whole time. And the way to replenish those for the most part while eating, obviously the food is for eating, but uh, resting in your spirit level, you'll have to find, uh, you know, friendly places to find a hammock or a nid <laughs> or go back all the way back to your own house, which is always an option too. So uh, once you begin playing the game and asking around and talking to people, you'll begin to get hints that Ramo is being held below the root in a hidden cave. And so the goal of the game is to find and rescue Ramo, but you can't just go to the hidden cave and go below the root. No, no, you're going to have to solve all sorts of puzzles. A lot of these puzzles are... Uh, mostly they're, they're finding people. Actually, it's kind of a, first of all, you have to find what the puzzle is like, uh, by pincing someone, eventually they will say, oh, you need the temple key. 
And by talking to other people, you will find out, oh, the temple key is at the top of whatever this particular grund is. Again, a grund is a giant tree. And so you'll piece these things together, and then you eventually will go to that area. And then when you go there, you may have to, uh, you know, use um, one of your pencil, not pencing, but, uh, you know, Grunspreak or a Kinaport to get to different areas. Uh, but eventually you'll get that key, and then that will open up another part of the adventure, and, and you could keep going, uh, you know, until eventually you get all the information and the things you need to go below the route. Now, there are 10 trees. Uh, three of them are all part of the temple grunt, but there are 10 giant grunts uh, that the map consists of, and they wrap around. Uh, I read a description that said you can imagine the trees have all been planted in a giant circle, which is a good way to think about it. So you never get to the end of the map. You could just continue, and, and it will continue to wrap around uh, the trees. Uh, the game consists of a matrix of 32 by 16. So there are 512 different screens to explore. And, you know, some screens don't have anything on them, but lots of screens have shops to enter, people's houses. You'll encounter random people. You'll encounter random animals. You will find objects that you will need during the adventure. There's all kinds of things. So this is basically a giant open world exploration, role-playing fantasy arcade adventure game. <laughs> Not leave any, any uh, genres out of that. Um, the game inside the game time, you get 51 days to complete the game. Now I watched a couple of playthroughs on YouTube and I watched people beat it in three to four days of, of actual game time. The fastest one that I saw of someone just basically directly following a walkthrough was about 30 minutes. So it does seem that uh, you could beat this game if you knew exactly where to go and exactly what to do and what items to use where you could beat this game uh, in 30 minutes. Now, I can tell you I've been playing this game off and on for um, 30 something years and I never beat it. <laughs> so the odds of you beating it in 30 minutes are not very likely. Um, so again, as you wander around the trees, you'll have to talk to people. You'll have to pins people. You'll have to visit all the shops. If you are an Erdling, then sometimes people at Erdling run shops will give you items versus, uh, you know, if you're not, uh, and you play one of the other characters, you know, then, um, uh, different people like Kindars will, will help you if you're a Kindar. So that, that's kind of one of the, the things that makes the game easier or more difficult on multiple playthroughs is picking, uh, different characters. Um, again, you have your, uh, spirit limit, your stamina, uh, and, um, your food. So you need to watch those as you're walking. And if you pull down to the menu, you can check your status, uh, and you will see the status of food, sleep, and spirit energy. Um, if you, there's not really a warning, you'll just be walking along and all of a sudden you will wake up in your house and it'll say, well, you passed out because you didn't sleep. So it's really on you as the player to monitor those things, uh, and make sure that you don't uh, run out of sleep or, or your, your food doesn't hit zero. Um, now again, uh, you can raise your spirit energy. There are different animals. Um, not all of them are easy to reach, but you'll see monkeys. 
<laughs> up in the trees are little rabbits and uh, things, and you can pence them and you will increase your spirit level by one. Uh, so that is a, an easy way. There are also other characters that you can meet that will help you increase your your spirit level. So uh, the game, you can't beat the game without raising your spirit level. And actually, um, this is uh, there is a, a scenario in this game where, for example, I believe, and, and I hope I get this right, uh, but um, I believe, uh, not if you're a... a not if you're an Erdling, but uh, I always forget <laughs> what the other one is. Uh, Kindar. If you're a Kindar and you eat meat, then your spirit level goes down. Uh, no, I, I know what it is. There is an item that you can obtain that will let you kill uh, other people. It will let you. And this is an entire society built on anti-violence. Um, so there's, you know, people aren't supposed to, to be violent towards one another. And if you use this item to kill people, your spirit level goes down, uh, I believe it's two points, permanently. And it can never go back up past that number. So to beat the game, you're going to need those spirit skills. In fact, uh, you need to use one of the spirit skills in the very last screen of the game. And if you've dropped your spirit level down to a certain point, then you can't beat the game. So it is possible to get this game into a uh, unwinnable state. Um, and that is the uh, Wand of Befall, or B-E-F-A-L. I guess it's the Wand of Befall. Um, now, that that is a, a useful item for another reason. So I want to talk about a couple of the other items that are available in the game. Uh, first of all is a Shuba. A Shuba is kind of like a parachute. It is a piece of clothing that I guess ties to your wrists and ankles. It kind of turns you into a flying squirrel. And you will need uh, shubas. Sometimes you'll find people that will give them to you. Sometimes you may have to buy one. Um, and uh, sometimes your shuba will rip if you parachute into an area that's full of tree branches and stuff. Uh, and you crash land, you can rip your shuba. And you'll need to buy another one. Um, so you need a shuba. And then um, also you'll need a trencher beak, which is basically, um, you know, can be used to cut through heavy vines and stuff. But the problem with trencher beaks is that they break. So you might need a couple of them, but the wand of Befall is basically is a permanent uh, trencher beak. So once you find that, then that problem goes away. Uh, you'll also find vines. That's something that you'll need and tokens and honey lamps, which I thought was a really fun idea. I don't know if this has been done elsewhere in literature, but a honey lamp is a lamp that you fill with honey, which attracts fireflies and basically turns it into a lamp. Um, again, there are magic items later that you can find that will replace uh, the honey lamp. But uh, so all these things are things that you will need uh, and you can, there is a limit to your inventory where you can't carry uh, any more items. So you'll have to balance how much stuff you have as you uh, walk around the different gruns and find people and talk to people and trade items and, uh, eventually find enough hints to figure out what you're supposed to be doing. And that's a big part of the game is even with once you've read the instructions, it's not really clear what you're supposed to be doing. And so those 51 days of game time are going to be spent wandering around trying to figure out where you're supposed to go or what you're supposed to be doing. Now, as a kid, uh, we spent a lot of time just wandering around talking to people. We didn't care. <laughs> we didn't care what the point of the game was. We just really enjoyed, uh, you know, the adventure 
part of the game. Now, there is no score in this game, not a conventional score. When you beat the game, depending on your time and uh, your different levels and stuff, you'll be given a rank. It may be gifted. It may be master. Um, there's a few different ratings, but there's not a traditional score uh, that is ever awarded. Now, I found a lot of extra information about this game, and that's one of the reasons why this week's episode's a little late, because there's just so much out there about Below the Root. But um, Zilpha Keatley Snyder uh, wrote this trilogy of books, the Green Sky Trilogy. Uh, it was They were published in the 70s. The first book was Below the Root, which was 1975. The second one was And All Between, which was 1976. And Until the Celebration, which was 1977. Uh, in interviews, Zilpha said that the name came from a childhood game where she and her friends would jump from tree to tree uh, and pretend that there was something awful that lived below the root. And so that was where the name originally came from. So it doesn't get into this in the manual, but I will tell you a little bit more about the backstory. The manual says... The computer game transpired when I was contacted by a young computer programmer named Dale Disharoon. After Dale introduced me to the world of computer games, I wrote and charted, Dale programmed, and a young artist named Bill Grotzinger made marvelous graphics for a game that takes off where the third book of the trilogy ends. That's the official explanation in the manual. But if you dig around... <laughs> And Wikipedia mentions it, but Wikipedia doesn't tell the story. Wikipedia has a reference to it. And lots of, as you know, other websites just quote Wikipedia. And so they all say something which basically says this game came about after readers were disappointed with the third book. Well, I dug into reviews of the three books. And of course, Below the Root, which was the first book, is the most well-received. And it tells the whole story. And this is, you know, your world building book. It talks about the gruns. It talks about the people. It talks about their relationships. Um, and it's a very fun and lighthearted kind of book. The second book gets more into the conflict of things that are going on or whatever. But apparently the third book, instead of having a happy ending, is all about all the political processes and procedures of trying to get these two races, the Erdling and the Kindars back together. Um, and that basically they go back to things the way they were because it's, it's too hard. And, you know, so it's really kind of a political statement type book. And apparently people hated it. <laughs> I mean, I've seen some reviews online of people, uh, I mean, I saw one review that said, oh, boy, I wish I had just read the first two books. I wish I'd never read the third book. And so apparently she got a lot of negative feedback based on this third book. And so when Dale Disharoon, this programmer, contacted her, she jumped at the opportunity. And instead of remaking you know, the first book or whatever, she took that opportunity to turn this into a fourth story. And so this picks up after that third book. And the goal of this is reuniting the races, uh, you know, the Kindara and the, um, the Erdling. And you find out that someone, I guess, uh, you know, Ramo who had been missing from the book or whatever is, is now he's missing. And, and so 
you know, it really does try to bring a closure to the story. Now, do you, do you have to know anything about those first three books? No, it, it's all backstory. And you can play this game without knowing any of that stuff. But it's kind of like jumping into, you know, a Lord of the Rings book or something, some kind of fantasy book where there's just a lot of terminology and, you know, made up words for stuff like a nid instead of a hammock, like that kind of stuff that you just have to get used to. But, uh, but yeah, so, so she really, Zilpha Snyder took this as an opportunity to try and fix her trilogy of books and make a different ending, uh, for the books. Now, um, I found that, uh, in the, uh, early or mid two thousands, there was a programmer who wanted to reboot, Below the Root. This was around the time the iPad came out, and he wanted to make an iPad version of Below the Root. And this gentleman has made a website where he's published uh, some of his uh, email and transactions with people. Uh, and he contacted Zilpha Snyder to see if, you know, if he could acquire the rights or do something. And in her response, she shared the fact that Dale Disharoon had passed away. He was the original programmer. Uh, and that's, you know, Wyndham Classics, which was a subdivision of Spinnaker, both of those companies no longer existed. So she didn't know who had the rights to the game. Obviously, she had the rights to the characters that were in her uh, trilogy. So she had um, referred this uh, programmer, this hopeful programmer, to her agent. And the agent responded, and there was apparently according to Zilpha, that the Below the Root was being um, pitched as a movie. And so that might have complicated the rights. And so this kind of dragged on for a little bit. And uh, unfortunately, Zilpha Keatley Snyder passed away in 2014. So um, with her gone and Spinnaker gone and uh, the original programmer gone, uh, I don't know who the rights to her stories uh, or to the game have turned over to, but it, it seems unlikely that there will ever be an official remake or sequel to the game uh, Below the Root. Now, one other thing I wanted to throw in about this game is that in the Commodore 64 version, there is a built-in level editor. Um, it's not really a level. This is something that was not intended for players to ever see. Uh, and you have to load the game and then break out of the game and, and, enter a, a, um, a monitor, and then I believe it's uh, uh, G9000 is what I read, and you could jump to this memory location. And so this is a level editor, again, not designed for anybody to ever see, but this was the tool that they used to build the game. And so there's a lot of weird things that you could do once you've got the game into this mode. Uh, there are buttons you could push to cycle through different colors, um, there are the, you can see the graphics that make up the game, uh, but you can also move to areas of the game that you are not supposed to ever be in. Uh, and one of the things that you could do that I guess locks the game up or, or does something weird is you can move to the screen that is the title screen of the game <laughs> that shows that below the root uh, banner that we talked about. And there's an animal, a little rabbit hopping around on that screen, which uh, you're supposed to be able to pince all the animals, but if you pince that animal, you, it returns some sort of error because apparently there was no response built in because you weren't supposed to be able to do this. Um, but uh, using this tool, people have created 
entire maps of the entire world, all 512 tiles, by moving to each one and printing them out and, and making these big, uh, I guess, a mosaic of graphics. So it's an interesting way to look behind the scenes of the game a little bit. Again, this is not intended for most people to do, um, but it is still built into the game. It, they left it in there. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like a million things. I don't know how somebody found it, but somebody did, and it's still there. I didn't find a lot of uh, official reviews of this game. Lemon64 has it as 8.5. And if you go through and look at readers' reviews or users of Lemon64 constantly, you will see everything from this is a top 10 game on the system to this is my favorite game of all time. I think this was a very special game for a lot of people who were uh, – children like I was when I first encountered it or young teens. Um, it, it has this, uh, uh, feeling of exploration in a strange world. That's, that's really attractive, I think to a kid and, uh, a lot of people, a lot of people uh, really enjoy this game. Um, there are three ports of the game, the Commodore 64, Apple II, and DOS versions, the Commodore 64 and Apple II versions are nearly identical. They're very, very similar with slight differences in color, but hardly enough to even notice. Uh, the DOS version is um, that old uh, CGA graphic. It is cyan and purple and black and white, and the graphics are not as sharp as on the Apple II and Commodore 64. So the DOS version is the the least good of the three. Now, one thing I found that was interesting on the Commodore 64 version is when you pull down on the menu system, there's a grid of choices and there are only 19 choices. Um, so it's a four by five grid and the bottom right corner is blank, which I thought was kind of odd, but I looked at videos of the Apple II and the DOS versions. And in that 20th spot is a thing for turning sound on and off. Uh, which makes sense because uh, early DOS machines and Apple II would have had the internal speaker. So you would have needed a way in the game to turn the sound on and off where Commodore 64 had an external monitor with a volume control. And so you would have just turned that off. So but it's weird that they um, you know, decided to take it out. You could still have a thing to turn the sound on and off. But uh, but I wondered what, gone, what had gone originally in that part of the menu. And, and um, I found out that's what it was. If you want to play this game today, uh, you can find it anywhere you find normal Commodore 64 disc images. It's a two-sided game, so there are two D64 images that you'll need, the front and the back. There's not a lot of disc swapping. Most of the game uh, loads off the front side. When you choose a character, you may have to flip the disc over once or twice to uh, load everything and then flip it over to the second side where it should be for the remainder of the game. So... Uh, but you will need to be able to flip discs. Uh, but now, with the latest firmwares that they have, like for the 64, the C64, and the 64 Mini, um, and all those things, you should be able to uh, play this game okay. If you want an original, you might want to get out your wallet. I only found two copies that have sold recently on eBay, and these are copies that have sold. Uh, one was $80 shipped. The other one was $100 shipped. Now, these were complete copies with the box, the manual, the map, and the diskette. There is a copy for sale on eBay right now, and someone is hoping to get about $400. Uh, so I would tell that guy 
he can find some money below the root. <laughs> and now a little bit about my personal memories of the game Below the Root. All right, time think of early video games, I think of games like Pac-Man or Donkey Kong, and I think of those games as being games on rails. You know, in Pac-Man, you could go anywhere you want to in the maze, but you can't really leave the maze. Donkey Kong is the same way. You you have to, you know, get from point A to point B. You can't just leave <laughs> the, the girders and go somewhere else, you know. And a lot of people... I know I do. I associate Super Mario Brothers um, with being a one of the early games where you could really explore things. You know, uh, still you had to move from left to right and go through these levels, but there were pipes, and you went down in the pipe and you went to a completely hidden area. Or sometimes you found areas in the clouds or whatever. And so Super Mario Brothers was one of those types of games that had, you know that adventurous kind of feel that there was more than just, you know, what was there on the screen and below the root is a game like that. In fact, below the root precedes uh, super Mario brothers uh, at its core. It is an RPG, I suppose. Um, I mean, it's an adventure, but you do pick different characters. They have different stats. Those stats can be increased over time. So it does feel a bit like a role-playing game. Um, but more important than that, now, and I will say this, there are equal parts action. I mean, you'll have to be in branches and there are jumps. And if you don't make the jump, you will fall and go all the way to the ground unless you have a shuba. But even then, you're going to have to do these things over and over. So there are parts that are that require hand-eye coordination, I would say. Um, but more than that, to me, was that open world feeling that this game had. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of people talk to, about early things like, um, oh gosh, like Grand Theft Auto or whatever. I mean, that's an extreme example, but you know, where you could just go anywhere and do anything, but below the roots, a lot like that. Like you start off in a tree and you could go up, you could go down, you could go left and right. You could go to other trees. You can spend the entire 51 days in the game and not do anything, just eat and survive and and walk around and talk to people. There's nothing forcing you to solve this problem that's taking place to find this missing person in below the root, you know? And so as a kid, that was in one part, I would say it's frustrating, right? Because it's not like a kid's game. It's not a game where you go, Oh, you know, now you got to do this. You got to get to this. You have to, you know, save the princess or do whatever. It doesn't tell you that. And so it's a, it was a little frustrating as a kid playing this game. I keep saying as a kid, uh, this game came out when I was 11 and I would go over to my friend Andy's and we would play it and just wander around, try to figure out what we were supposed to do. But also in the same sense, this is a game that treats you like an adult. You know, it doesn't hold your hand. It says, listen, go out there and figure out what's going on and go solve the problems. And so to be treated like an adult by a game was, uh, exciting, you know, and that whole, again, the exploration of climbing into these trees and, and nothing's off limits, you know, and, and trying to solve these puzzles, you might climb a tree and then you see a little hut that's on a faraway branch, but there's no way to get there. 
So do you have to go higher? Do you have to go to the next tree and jump over and, and land and come, you know, like use your parachute and glide into that? Like, how do you get there, you know? And that was the fun part of this game for me was trying to solve those little puzzles um, and just finding everything out about that world. And I got to be honest, that, um, you know, discovery of the level editor just completely rekindled that feeling for me. Again, it just makes it where you go, wow, there's even more to explore in this game. There's more rooms. There's more stuff. There's hidden stuff, you know? Uh, and, and so this game really triggers that adventurous feeling in me of just wanting to explore and poke around. Uh, again, I mentioned that I, I watched a playthrough on YouTube and someone beat the game in 30 minutes, but I don't think it was, I don't think that's fun. I don't think that's a fun way to play the game. It can be done, but it's more about a game that slowly unfolds. It's very atmospheric. It's very uh, mysterious. And um, I just love it. It just uh, is a game that really transports you into this strange world and allows you to explore it at your own pace. For graphics, I give the game three out of five Shubas. They're not excellent graphics, and sometimes the backgrounds can be a little confusing inside the huts, but everything is plain enough that you can understand what every object is and what you're supposed to do with it. For music, I also give the game three out of five Shubas. Music only plays when achievements are made, so there's no background music, and there's not a lot of music in the game, but what's there is palatable. For sound effects, I also give the game three out of five Shubas. There are constantly uh, footsteps. You'll hear beeps and boops and other types of sound effects. You'll hear bonks when you hit your head. And so they're average. They work. But overall gameplay, I give Below the Root five out of five Shubas. This is a game that has to be played. It is an open-world RPG combined with action-adventure that you just have to jump in and truly experience to find out why so many people love this game. again for tuning in to Sprite Castle. If you'd like to send me feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me at robohara at robohara.com, contact me on Twitter at Commodork, follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcasts, catch me hanging out in the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, or leave me a voicemail on the Flack Podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. If you'd like to support the show and gain access to behind-the-scenes blog posts and other bonus features, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara to learn more. Sprite Castle is available from iTunes, the Sprite Castle RSS feed at podcast.robohara.com, through the Amigos feed at anchor.fm forward slash Amigos podcast, and as of this week, on Spotify. To hear more podcasts from me, check out You Don't Know Flack, Cactus Flax, Throwback Reviews, and Multiple Sadness. You can find links to all these shows at podcast.robohara.com. Many of the news articles and game details for Sprite Castle come from websites such as Commodore News, Indie Retro News, Vintage is the New Old, 
the Commodore Scene Database, Lemon64, and Moby Games. Thanks again for listening. Now get back to surfing with Shubas, and we'll see you here next time on Sprite Castle. Mm-hmm.